Under the leadership of that haughty woodsman, Daniel Boone, a large party set out for the new land, Kentucky. Where else comes to be pretty like me? I'm Colonel Harold Sanders, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about my Kentucky Fried Chicken. Have I told you you people are crazy? This is Old Kentucky Tales, the only podcast that solemnly swears that we have never worn our jackets inside out as a disguise. Today's title is Dark Fire, Night Riders, and Tobacco Wars. I'm your host, Brent Taylor. Never far behind is the man who's always ahead when it comes to witty commentary, Jason Donner. Well, <laughs> I thought Todd's <laughs> indicating God knows what. Um, <laughs> did we talk earlier about the pa- like the jackets? Is that going to come up later magically? The jackets will magically appear. It will? In the middle of the interview. Oh, uh, it will? So sit tight. Uh, Don't touch that dial. It, okay, I'm gonna. <laughs> it feels like we've already done it, <laughs> but it, I know uh, that we haven't technically <laughs> in the past. The magic. I don't remember of any jackets coming up. Did, <laughs> did she in the future maybe mention jackets? We hope there will be a mention of jackets. <laughs> okay, there will be. Is this driving nuts? <laughs> <laughs> That's Today. a witty comment. Yeah, when, I'm so as witty as it comes, right? I'm so done with all this. <laughs> we to, thought this was the 100th episode or something. Oh, that was a disappointment. <laughs> it's only the 93rd. Yeah, and like yeah. two episodes ago, I said it was the 100th. So if you listen to that one, uh, d- don't. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know what 90th. we were thinking. I don't know what we're thinking. Anyway, enough of that. It's it's counting backwards. Holy and crap! I'm eating into our seven minutes of times too. <laughs> Well, today we will speak with Bernadette Rule, the author of Dark Fire, and along the way, don't forget to support the fake history sponsors who support Old Kentucky Tales. The products are real, only the sponsorship is fake. Great Hopkins County Fair, August 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th. 20 free attractions in front of the grandstand. Six races daily, beautiful floral hall, grand array of ring horses, plenty of free ice water. First day free to children under 15 and to old people over 70. No intoxicants, no gambling. One fare plus 25 cents on all railroads. Special train leaving Hopkinsville at 8.30 a.m. and returning at 6 p.m. the last three days of the fair. The leading feature of the Kentucky State Fair is Frank P. Selman's Carload of Educated Bears. This attraction makes only two county fairs in the state of Kentucky, the Henderson Fair and the Great Hopkins County Fair. Admission, gentlemen 35 cents, ladies 25 cents. That seems wrong. Man, <laughs> yeah, have to pay you're more. Gonna, you're going to have to charge 10 more Maybe cents for a they guy? cause more problems. Well, this sounds like a normal, nice county fair. Do they like really bury the interesting part? Educated bears. <laughs> right. Did I say bear or fair? Educated bears at the fair. Yeah, this is just a normal fair until they like oh, we're going to go see educated bears. <laughs> right. So you say, how much is two plus three? <laughs> 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 yeah, they scratch someone's face off five times. Uh, okay, is that what you picked that? I don't know. I, What's I the like, hook here? Something weird? I like the educated bears. Educated bear. I, I also think it's funny that they very specifically say no intoxicants. No intoxicants. And no gambling. Yes. We're not having any of these weird so games for yeah, money. Yeah, don't just sit like down that. in the corner with everybody and just start shooting dice. I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's, they're keeping it clean, right? Yeah. And, I, and also, I found it interesting where they said that uh, – 
The admission is free to old people over 70. Yeah, old people over 70. It just came just right over out and 70s. said it. You know, Got there's, it. There's no yeah. uh, euphemism there or anything. Uh-uh. We just say old. old people. Yes. And it's in all caps. Old yeah, I, people. Uh-huh. So they can see it better. <laughs> in fact, the only part they can read is free day free to children, old people. Hey, that's all they need to know, right? Yep. Take the grandkids, pile up, get on down there. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> um, yeah, old old is just they're old. If they're old, they're old. You know, old's an insult. Young, not. Middle-aged, is that an insult? If you someone... Nobody Said you're ever middle really, age. It's not a good thing. No, nobody so ever really. So it's just you got to be young. Like, the younger yeah. you, the, the younger you are, the the better you are. If you're a baby, you're at your absolute prime. Yeah. Have yet yet to decay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How much time right. left, Brent? I'm gonna get it down to the last second. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not even gonna get close to the last. No, second. I know, I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, babies, you're are good. You're not even capable of it. Uh huh. Free to, <laughs> free ice water. Free ice water. Yep. Uh huh. Must be hot. Summertime. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> this is, <laughs> you've done better, Brent. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought you liked the educated. I fish. do actually like these, and it's not about a, some old fashioned <laughs> toilet or, I don't know, house of ill repair. <laughs> that too. That's a theme in your commercials. I was going to say, uh, our friend David, he you get him to record a lot of these things, don't you? He's good at it. Yeah. He, do, he just a, sounds like one of those guys. He does sound right. Uh-huh. Sounds like, uh, sounds like a Gary Cooper type. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now for the moment we've all been waiting for. The main event. Round one. We are here with Bernadette Rule, the author of Dark Fire. It's a book about some really heavy stuff. The tobacco, uh, Black Patch Wars, Night Riders. A lot of, lot of stuff in there that's a uh, mm-hmm. little, little hard to handle maybe, but also really fascinating at the same time. Right, captures that period of time really well. Yeah, yeah, and it's a, a real live story. Isn't that right, Bernadette? Oh, yes, yes, this is a true story, and I want to thank you for having me on to talk about Dark Fire. Um, it's, uh, it's been a, a long project for me. I wrote the book 20 years ago and, um, you know, have tried to, ever since to find publishers for it and wasn't able to. So I finally, in the centenary year of the story, which was 1920, 1921, I finally just decided to self-publish. So I've published with a company called Lulu.com, and you can order the book from there. Excellent. Yeah, right. And that's a shame about these publishers, because <laughs> the content of this book, is something that, that people are curious about. Mm-hmm. I, I remember way back in the 90s, people doing research projects in my classes about On the this topic, right. yeah. this, this very uh, kind of topic. Yes. Is there a lot yes, of... it's, it's a topic. It's a topic that has great resonance for people in Western Kentucky and Tennessee, especially, but, but really all over the world. I find that I live in Canada and uh, they're very, very into the story here as really? well. Very interested. Yeah. I can see that because you kind of have that lawless element to it and mob rule kind of <laughs> themes sure. that run through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately, those are still alive and well today. So uh, it, it has resonance for modern times as well. Exactly. The, the 
King Mob never gets dethroned. Mm. Oh, it's too bad. <laughs> You're always looking for like a nice little blurb to get it into, right? It's one he's, small He's obviously phrase. very pithy. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's one way us, to put it, yeah. Tell us about the research phase of this book. My father told my brothers and sisters and me this story when we were kids, and um, I never forgot the story. And after he died in 1984 is when I actually began researching, looking into it, and I ended up doing that right to the end of the last century. It was <laughs> over 10 years I did the research. Every time I went home to visit Mom, uh, I would go to the archives, I would go to the basement of the the um, Graves County Courthouse, uh, I would ask questions of everyone who was alive at the time, in the 20s, who were children and so on, and they had remarkable stories to tell me. So it was a question of knitting together the real stories that I was told, and um, and I wanted to tell the story as creative nonfiction. I, I first wrote it as rather dry, I guess, um, history, you know, pure nonfiction, and I sent it to the University Press of Kentucky, thinking they would be the logical place to publish it, and they said, there's so much drama here, this is such a rich story, you should rewrite it as if it were fiction. And so I did that, I rewrote the, the whole book, starting over, and then when I presented it to them the second time, they said, oh, we don't publish fiction. <laughs> 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 I thought, well, all right. But I was happy that I had done it, because I thought it was a stronger book for that as well. And then I used to, you know, go to talk to anybody who would talk to me, who would read the manuscript and give me advice, and I went to a woman, a, a, a Canadian writer named Sandra Birdsell, who was a writer in residence here at our public library up here in Canada, and she, she, um, it sounds like there's one public library in all of Canada. Anyway, she, she was wonderful, and she said, I intended to read 10 pages of this book, but I could not put it down. She said, it's remarkable, and I think it needs to be told in the first person instead of in the omniscient perspective, and I thought, oh, my God. I said, but how can I do that? I mean, they die at the end. And she said, you'll figure it out. So what I did was tell the story in every other chapter in a different voice. So the even chapters I tell in, um, well, I should start with the odd. The odd chapters I tell in the voice of my Uncle Pat, who was a remarkable resource for me. He lived longer than Daddy, and so by the time I was an adult and doing the research and I knew the kinds of questions I needed to ask, Pat was there, and he had a remarkable memory. He was eight when all of it began, and nine uh, in 1921. So I used his voice for the odd-numbered chapters, and the even I went to omniscient so that I could tell it from the perspective of the people who were killed. And I think it's got a strength because of the two different perspectives, and I thank Sandra Birdsell for giving me that idea. I, I'd like to say something because as... As we go to air here, it's December of, uh, I mean, sorry, not go to air, but as we record, it's December of 2021, the centenary year of these deaths. And Mayfield has just suffered a catastrophic tornado. 
And uh, first of all, my heart goes out to them. I cried all last weekend and could hardly stop crying to think of my beloved hometown leveled the way it was and the suffering that the people were going to go through. The very records, I just keep thinking those records are going to be gone now, and that kills me. But um, but I have to say that um, I'm, I'm so glad I did the research when I did. And the last time Mayfield, Kentucky, made the international news the way it did this week with this tornado was in 1921 with the Drew Lawrence massacre, these two young farm families who were caught in the crossfire of the Black Patch Wars or the efforts to build um, a union for tobacco farmers. That's what the book is all about. And uh, it's remarkable to me that 100 years later to the year, Mayfield is back in the news with another horror. Um, It just kind of breaks my heart. Yeah, it's a, it really is an amazing coincidence here. Uh, that it we, is. We arranged for this interview, um, and right about at the exact same time, like she says, 100 years ago, when it was a really major national story. Yeah. yeah. You bring up a good point about the records also. I, I hadn't really thought about that, oh. but, but you see over and over again, that uh, such and such records were lost in a fire in 1871 oh, oh. or something right. like that. Yeah. And yeah. This may prove to be that same kind of event where all that's oh. just kind of blown away. Isn't well, definitely. Thing? You know, a friend, a friend of a friend lives 100 miles away from Mayfield, and she found report cards in her backyard from Mayfield. They, their whole town was full of debris from that tornado. And when I look at the pictures, when I look at the pictures of the courthouse, that's where I did so much of my research. I think of the boxes full of records that I went through sitting on the basement floor there. Now, it may be that some of them survived, but between the wind and then the electrical fires that happened afterward and so on, I, I suspect our records are are gone. But right. apparently the, the library, the Grays County Public Library, was not hit. Thank God. So we have that. But the messenger office was was completely blown out, and, um, you know, it's it's hard to think about all that's gone. Right. This just happened here, or where we are in this area where we record this podcast. It was um, Saturday. When this airs, it'll be a few months later, and then, you know, we'll know uh, how it all Mm -hmm. played out then. But what I did want to ask you about, you're in Canada, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I was just curious, like how how much of this, or is it a how much of a story? I guess it is just on your uh, national news. Oh, it's huge. Okay. It, it's leading. They say we begin in Mayfield, Kentucky, and I start crying because <laughs> right. that's just not not what happens, you know. Right. And all my friends here, I didn't realize they all knew that I was from Mayfield, Kentucky. They knew I was from Kentucky. But I have been hearing from people I haven't heard from for decades, all just saying, oh, Bernadette, I am so sorry about your town. 
and it just really moves me so deeply because mm-hmm. I hadn't realized what a shrine to Mayfield I had made in my heart and in my home when I was listening to the radio the first morning after the tornado. I realized I was sitting on a Mayfield chair at a Mayfield table, looking at my mother's Christmas crib, which is from Woolworths <laughs> yeah. in Mayfield, right. looking on the other wall, a 1923 picture of the woolen mills in Mayfield. You know, I, it's everywhere, all around me. So I guess, of course, my friends all knew. <laughs> but Right. That's uh, interesting. Yeah, you surrounded yourself with those uh, artifacts from where you came from. Oh, Yeah. And somebody said to me, well, thank God you got them out of Mayfield. They'd be splintered by now if if you hadn't gotten them out of there. And I thought, well, yeah, I've saved a lot of stuff, I guess, from Mayfield. God love it. And that makes kind of an interesting segue, too. Uh, In your research phase, did you read much about the community's reaction to what happened with with those crimes? Oh, yes. Yes, it was huge. I mean, in the book, I've included some photographs, and some of them show the people going out the next day. The the murders happened on a Friday night at midnight. So on that Saturday, um, oh, I'm sorry, not a Friday night, that's the tornado. Um, the, the murders of the Jews and Lawrences happened on a Saturday night at midnight. So on Sunday, as soon as people were out of church, the word had spread, and they came out, and it became like a circus. It was part of the tragedy for the family who had gone out in the middle of the night and saw the place still burning and all the bodies inside. Very tragic for them. Pat remembered all those details so clearly, and so did Daddy. And they're the reason that I know it was Night Riders, because uh, Harden, my grandfather, Pat and Daddy's uh, father, he showed them the the track, the freshly beaten track of horses' hooves. Well, by the next day, those were obliterated because so many people had come out to the scene that they knocked over the fence and they they just stood around all day. And there were, just like with the tornado, there were suddenly reporters from New York City there. Now, how they got there, I don't know. But my, my local television reporters here in Canada, in Ontario, are in Mayfield. They were in Mayfield on the weekend. Now, I don't understand it. People said to me, you can't get through, the bridges are out, the power's down, you can't get there. But the reporters always get there. Now, you guys are reporters. How do you do it? <laughs> they, they found a way, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, and I don't know. swimming across the river. Yeah. They're <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> They're standing there, you know, NBC, ABC, uh, you know, BBC, C- CTV, everybody is there. And oh. I'm so shocked. Because I can't get there. Well, uh, thanks for calling us reporters, too. I don't know if that's a fair compliment <laughs> either. Do you? What uh, do you feel like over there, Brent? Do you feel like you're reporting? Yeah, bloviating. <laughs> An extension of all your ramblings in classes. Yeah, yeah. When <laughs> 75 minutes in class isn't enough, then I come yeah. down here. Okay, I know. You can't get enough history. <laughs> you got to, like, talk to us about it. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what, 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 yeah. about, uh, what about night riding in general? Yeah. So, so when you were looking into this, what sorts of techniques and procedures did you find the, the night riders were engaged in? 
Oh, well, you know, the, the person who developed the Knight Riders as the militant wing of the unionizing body um, is was... Um, Oh my gosh, wait a minute. His name is suddenly, suddenly not coming to me. Uh, David Amos. David Amos. He was a doctor in central Kentucky, I believe, maybe Tennessee, but I think it was Kentucky. Anyway, David Amos was the one who got the idea that to, to form a union of tobacco growers, they were going to need to arm. And I'm so sorry that he, he got that idea. What he did was he went to the Klan, the Ku Klux Klan, and asked them uh, what their tactics were and learned from them. And they used things like midnight to add um, an, a, a level of terror. Um, they used the idea of masking themselves. They didn't wear hoods and all that for the most part. A couple, of, some of the night riders did, but most of them just masked their horses because your horse was like your car back then. And if people could make out right. what your what who, whose horse was there, they'd know it was you there. So they used blankets and they muffled the horses' hooves and they. Uh, they covered their faces, and they themselves would just usually turn their coats inside out. I talked to one woman, um, Clute Walker, who lived in the neighborhood that my father grew up in, right across from the tobacco chute, uh, which was the beginning of all of it, um, when the Night Riders rode into town and took over the town and burnt the chute in March of 1920. That was really the beginning of these deaths, because... They came to trial over and over all year, and uh, people wouldn't uh, witness against them. And so just that very weekend that the Drews and Lawrences were murdered, the Knight Rider trial was coming up again on the Monday, and it was rumored that they had witnesses this time, and they were going to take them in, which would mean losing their farms and everything else if they were, you know, in March, if they're they're jailed. So... Anyway, the Clute Walker told me that she watched the Night Riders march up. She was a young woman at the time, and she said, uh, I, uh, it was a full moon night, and I'll never forget the way you could see the labels, the white labels inside their coats on the back of their necks. He sa- she said, you know, that, that was what stuck out, stuck out in her mind so strongly. Um, but that's kind of the tactics that they used. They took them from the Klan, but not quite as fully. Although if you look at Judge Cunningham's book uh, on bended knees, uh, and that's about night riding, and it's about the first round of the Black Patch Wars, 1904 to 1908. And um, that's uh, where you see pictures of guys with the Klan-style hooded uh, outfits on. That wasn't so much the case in the second round, which was after the First World War, the round that I'm describing. Yeah, and I remember from that first period, too, seeing things like the Night Riders go around and disarm the local police and mm-hmm. prevent fires from being extinguished by firefighters yeah. and things like that. Uh, were you seeing that kind of stuff in your research on the second round? Absolutely. Exactly the same things happened. You know, there are people who don't want me to use the word Black Patch Wars for this story. There are people who don't want me to capitalize Night Riders because they believe that they're two different things. And they, they believe, including Judge Cunningham, believes that 
that all of it ended in 1908. Well, it certainly didn't end then, and maybe I should not capitalize Knight Riders anyway, but the fact is that the same tactics were being used with the same goals in mind. There were the same motivations. They had the same leader in Felix Ewing, and many of these were the same players on both sides of the of the question, uh, the tobacconists and the and the unionists, and so um, I, I, I think that's really silly to be splitting hairs like that and say this wasn't the Black Patch Wars. It, it, it was exactly the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And and I looked up the history of the tobacco union. The, you know, I went to Murray to their headquarters when I was doing my research in the 90s by then. This was the late 1990s. They were a little nervous of me, I have to say. I was coming in with a slightly northernized accent, and, uh, you know, tobacco was totally under the gun at this time, and they were very uh, uncomfortable. And I said to them, I really, uh, believe me, I I want to tell the story of tobacco farming here, including this unionizing and all of it, as fairly and honestly as I can. So they were helpful to me. Uh, In the 1904-1908 iteration, the the um, tobacco union was called the Planters Protective Association, the PPA. Well, that was sort of falling into uh, disuse by the time of the Second World War because prices had gone up. It had worked. But then when guys came back from that, uh, I'm sorry, I keep saying the Second World War, the First World War, when they came back in 1920 from the First World War, um, the prices all leveled off and fell again. And that's when they began to form again. And this time they formed something called the Dark Tobacco Growers Association. And the Night Riders were were um, not part of the, what happened in the later 20s. After this massacre, the Night Riders stopped riding. I think they were just shocked, sober by what had happened to these two young families and what they found themselves capable of. Anyway... The Dark Tobacco Growers Association failed, and in 1926, they tried again, and this time they went back with night riding and threats of hanging. And um, finally, in 1930, Murray's Western Dark Fire Tobacco Growers Association was formed without any night riding, and that is what just closed down in 2006. Uh, go to the Murray Ledger and Times article by Greg Travis of December 1st, 2006, and it is extremely helpful to to sort all this out, the different phases of all of this. Right, and just for the record, I am for capitalizing anything that's a proper noun, so I think you did the right thing I would there. call it a proper noun. <laughs> it was a historic uh, group or event, so yes. it, it would bear that as a proper noun. And you also bring up an interesting point on this resurgence of night riding. The same mm-hmm. thing happened with the Klan. They're, the way I like to think uh. about it is the, the Klan had a 1.0, which is post-Civil War, and then it kind of fell into disrepair and went away, and then it had a 2.0, interestingly enough, in the 20s. Huh. So, I didn't so it, know that. Yeah, it did the same kind of thing. It, it kind of came up and had a new respectability, and the membership was wow. surging and all that stuff. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah. that they really kind of mirror each other, and it, I think it maybe even tells you a lot about the 1920s with the type yes, of social indeed. pressures that were going on coming out of World War One. 
Uh, like you yeah. say, uh, World War One was kind of a golden era for farming. The prices were way, way up simply because yeah. you're trying to feed the world, you're feeding armies, yeah. and uh, then, right. then when the war stops, you get that armistice and everything just suddenly shocks to Plunges. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's it's fascinating stuff. And I, people want to say that the Knight Riders and the Klan were the same thing. Well, they weren't the same thing, but probably there were people who were in both. Uh, but they had different motivation um, and uh, and slightly different methods. But certainly the Knight Riders who came later learned from the Klan, unfortunately. And as you say, King Mob will never be dethroned. It's terrible. But it's all back around again now. You know, it's uh, it's sickening. Not good. There's always that struggle. There's other examples of where, uh, I guess you call it common folk, are struggling against the power brokers, the industry. Um, and in those times, it was normal and, uh, I guess, uh, just like it was a regular tactic to become actually violent. Well, against those people mm -hmm. uh, through all unionization, you know? That's a good point, too. If you look back at the 19th century, early 20th century, taking the law into your mm -hmm. own hands is just something that's done. Yeah. Uh -huh. If there's a criminal yeah. and, right. and, you, and you know that the criminal is guilty, sure. why wait? Yeah. And that's just the way they looked at it. Mm -hmm. And it's the same kind of yeah. thing here. They, they know that big tobacco is ripping them off, so why <laughs> wait for that? Same kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I'd like to mention another invaluable resource for me, um, which is in the Pogue Library. It's never been published as a book. It's a dissertation by a woman named Suzanne Hall, and it's called Breaking Trust, the Black Patch Tobacco Culture of Kentucky and Tennessee, 1900 to 1940. She takes it all the way up to 1940. It is so good. And it describes a lot about farming. I wasn't raised on a tobacco farm. I had to learn about farming from my friends who were um, and from a number of sources. But Suzanne Hall's dissertation in the Pogue really helped me a lot in terms of practical understanding of the work. And the work is backbreaking. It was totally backbreaking in the more unmechanized period at the beginning of the 20th century than it is now, but it's still, it's incredibly detailed, difficult work, and Dark Fired is different from Burley, and um, and is a real, uh, the farmers who I talked to said, the growing of Dark Fire tobacco is an art that's handed down father to son, generation to generation, and it's a 14-month crop, uh, you never get a break from it, <laughs> you know, it's truly uh, hard work to get it just right. And um, so I, I came away from my research with a great deal of respect for these farmers, and they're rarely treated with respect in literature. So that's one thing I wanted to do, because these young people lost their lives in a very tragic, terrible way. And, and um, you know, I wanted to shed light on those lives, those short, really honorable lives that they lived, you know, uh, and, and the youngest was, I think she was two months, three months old, you know, so I just wanted to bring those people back in some way in writing the book, so I really hope that that comes across. 
Well, you certainly have, and it did. This feels like a really good miniseries, too, like a Kevin Costner-based <laughs> Oh, wouldn't some, it be Tom a Selleck ABC for special real. of the week? Yeah, I mean, it yeah. would be a compelling story to see uh, played out. I don't know if, how much that's ever happened in a movie. I've never seen a movie. I've never yeah. heard of it. Topic. Yeah, not anything modern, certainly. They might. Uh, no, uh, all right, Bernadette. We just I gave mean, you a homework for assignment. real. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you this: I made uh, uh, what you call a book trailer, which is like a movie trailer. There you go. I I just put it up last week, just before the tornado struck Mayfield, um, and it's got pictures of what Mayfield looked like a hundred years ago, as the book does. Anyway, if you Google "dark fire book trailer," it's on YouTube and it comes up. Nice. And it's just like a minute and a half long or two minutes long, I think. And um, uh, so maybe somebody will look at yeah, it and think, oh. This, <laughs> See, she's already this thinking make that. A good yeah, she's thinking movie rights. <laughs> she's going in that direction. <laughs> <laughs> Coming That's to a great. theater near you. Sure. Dark fire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I better hire that. you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. Now, uh, we recorded what she just said there. Yes. We better we'll be hire using you guys. That lots of promos. <laughs> yeah, it was your <laughs> idea, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, uh, Bernadette, tell great. us one, one more time where everybody can find a copy of this book because they need to get it, get it into their hands and read it. Oh, great! Thank you. Well, you can order it from Lulu dot com. That's L U L U dot com. You can order it from Amazon and all the usual places. You can order it from the nearest bookstore to you. But if you order it directly from Lulu dot com, I get a much higher um, <laughs> royalty on it. Uh, I get about a third. I get about a third of the price from most places, but I get uh, two thirds of the price from them. Okay. And uh, so I'm I'm all about Lulu. You uh, up until the tornado struck, you could get a copy of Dark Fire in Mayfield at the Ice House. The Ice House is currently toast, but I trust they're going to rebuild. So if by the time this broadcast comes out in the spring, uh, there's an opportunity. Uh, check the Ice House. Uh, it, it was available there. Well, all right. Thanks and Lulu.com. Yeah. Yeah, Lulu, yeah, let's go com. and get the two-thirds commission. It there, must be yeah. L-U-L-U.com. <laughs> yes. Okay, good. <laughs> all right, well, thanks. Well, the Ice that. House gave me, a, gave me a great break, too, I must say. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to tell more people about Dark Fire. Sure, I, I I appreciate that too. That you really wanted to tell this story and tell it in a compelling way, like you've done. So thank you. Oh, thank you. And I'll tell you, I, I, Daddy told us two fascinating stories from Graves County in the twenties, and I've written them both. I researched and wrote them simultaneously. So I have another book I'm going to bring out, but I I thought I had to get this one out first because of the centenary. But the other one is called The Arithmetic of Color. And that will come out, um, I hope, next year or the year after. All right. Well, just come right back to us, and we'll do another one of these <laughs> yeah. things. Great. All right. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. We better pay some bills around here now that our conversation's over, Jason. <laughs> yeah, it is over. It's in the past now, and it won't happen again. <laughs> true <laughs> this part of the program is brought to you by the diamond scope by carl Hines. diamonds have an orderly market there is never an oversupply because there is never overproduction the demand for diamonds is very steady from year to year especially in the jewelry industry 
It is for this reason there are no fantastic sales nor great discounts possible. Uh huh. So come on down and pay full price. Right. At the Diamond Scope. Here's why we don't do discounts because we don't have to. We want to keep our profits high by not getting too many diamonds. Yeah, yeah. I want to, I want to make a lot of money, so I'm just We're not going to have dig very out many of these. Just enough diamonds. Don't even expect a sale. Yeah, because I'm rolling in it. <laughs> do you love how swaggy this is? Yeah. Why, why did he even bring this up? I've got what you want. Uh huh. See you Saturday. We don't make a lot, so the prices don't lower, and consequently, no sales at all. That is an odd inside why diamond even baseball tell us this? To, to bring up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just going to make you mad. Yeah. Why do we need to know this? Maybe he's sick of people asking for a discount. <laughs> hey, can I get 30% off? No. No. Diamonds have a steady value. Because we are a monopoly. <laughs> Who is trying to control this? <laughs> yeah, that's just rube. You rube. That is really an interesting. It's a weird sales thing pitch. to just put this in the newspaper. It is, it is indeed. So if you weren't mad before at the diamond store, is there a diamond store? I forget about jewelry stores, honestly. Um, yeah, yeah. People I mean, still you, love diamonds. Yeah, sure, sure. Especially got to get engaged or whatever, so mm -hmm. you got to plop down the diamond. Oh yeah. The it's a, yeah, they got you there. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh there is a way out. Cubic zirconia. Oh, I know, but your pride's at stake then. <laughs> <laughs> She'll never know, Jason. She'll never know. Oh, lying. Yeah, there's that alternative. <laughs> I don't know why this guy posted this, but good for him. You don't have to lie unless you count a lie of omission, right? Uh-huh. You just, <laughs> Well, hey, most of us here do. it is. Yeah. And, I mean, she's not going to question it because that would be untoward. <laughs> this right? is like a plot from <laughs> I Love Lucy. She'll never know. Ricky! It's not a Just give her this. Yeah, give her this, Rick. Give her this, Rick. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, so they lost the ring and they yeah, getting a yeah. replacement for cheap. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> we'll switch it later. It's stuck on her finger with, I don't know. <laughs> Pam, butter. They put butter on it. That that does sound exactly. Like, they probably have one like that. Oh, I'm sure that there if is you go plenty. Back and look through the yeah, catalog. there's at least one episode of every sitcom where something gets stuck on something. <laughs> Usually a finger, handcuff, something. Uh huh. It's part of the formula, right? Uh huh. <laughs> Diamonds. You got a nice, nice giant diamond watch there on you, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Look at those sparklers. I actually don't wear a watch anymore. You don't? I used to That's really so cool. like it, and then yeah, I just kind of stopped. Yeah, do you really need it? Uh, every once in a while, you might need uh, it. But, I know. But not enough to go through with changing the batteries. Uh, and... I like to think of it as my friend. <laughs> <laughs> we have now turned to the final page of this chapter, but it's okay, because Old Kentucky Tales just keeps on marching towards its 100th episode. Even though we thought we did the hundredth episode yeah, way back when, way back, you can download even more episodes. Apparently, almost a hundred of them on Apple Podcasts or the NPR One app. It'll actually download automatically there. If you like what you hear, please leave a review or rate us. Apparently, that's really important stuff. If you didn't like it, then there's no way you're all the way at the end of the episode, so no big deal. Special thanks to WKMS, our producer Todd Birdsong. Our guest, Bernadette Rule. Yes. The Paducah School of Art and Design. Absolutely. West Kentucky Community and Technical College. Totally. 
and the rest is history.